You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me look at you. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm settling into my new job. Still don't know what I'm allowed to say about that, but so far, so good. Still have a job, so still good. There's been weather in Los Angeles that isn't sunshine for the last two weeks, which has been less good because I moved away from NorCal to get away from the cold and the rain, and this just will not do. Anyway, on to the stuff. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews, we've got Nightmare Alley. Ugh. I was so looking forward to this movie, and ugh. Nightmare Alley is Guillermo del Toro's latest film, and it's probably his worst. Too many characters, too weak of a story coming from the man who made the fish fairy tale a few years ago, and way too long. You can see the ending coming from, like, about 15 minutes into this movie. It's hard to tell exactly when because it felt like an absolute eternity. I felt like I was in that theater for an eternity. The positives, the Meisen scene and cinematography, they're wonderful. And the acting is pretty good. But it's a blah movie. I was so disappointed. I so wanted that movie to be good and it is not. Well, as you can tell because you're hearing my voice, I'm back for this month. So let's get into this month's theme. For the last few months, we've done more modern stuff pertaining to movie making. So it's about time to switch that up. This month, we're going all the way back to the birth of cinema to talk about six dudes whose inventions and breakthroughs took singular photographs and transformed them into the motion pictures we all know and love today. It's hardcore film history this month, y'all. So this week, the artist, visionary, and murderer whose revolutionary work and inventions would be considered the prequels to cinema. His name was Edward Mybridge. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Edward James Muggeridge was born April 9, 1830 in Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey, England. He would change his name several times throughout his entire life, including adding all those unnecessary vowels to his first name. Take a peek at the episode name. It's worse than a millennial parent naming their child Ashley. He landed on Moybridge in like 1865, and that was a name he would more or less use throughout his life. He'd change shit up here and there. But for the sake of sanity, I'm just going to call him Moybridge throughout this episode. It's no need to make this more difficult than it already is. Moybridge's parents were John and Susanna Muggeridge, whom would have four kids in all. John was a grain and coal merchant until his death in 1843, after which time Susanna took over the family business and also ran a barge. The family lived above their shop. 
At the age of 20, Moybridge emigrated to the United States in search of adventure and a desire to make a name for himself. He told his grandmother before he left his sleepy hometown, quote, If I fail, you will never hear of me again. Moybridge traveled throughout the United States, but little is known about what he actually got up to. In New York City, it's believed that he was maybe a partner in a book business enterprise called Moybridge, another one of his former names, and Bartlett, which was in business for about a year. By January 1855, he was living in New Orleans, making a living as a book agent. By September of 1855, Moybridge had made his way out west to a five-years-old California. He settled in San Francisco in April of 1856, where he continued selling books and also art prints, mostly photo prints of, like, famous people and copies of paintings. He wasn't a wealthy man, but he was a comfortable man. San Francisco was in its gold rush boom, which had begun in the late 1940s, and because of all the, you know, prospectors and all of the insanity that that whole situation attracted, San Francisco was essentially the Wild West at this time, with many of the buildings being built out of the abandoned ships in the harbor, which were left by those who arrived in search of fortune in the hills. The city actually burned down like a bunch of times because of the crappy wood they were using to build the buildings. It was a, it was a hot mess. Edward's brother George came to San Francisco in 1858, but died of tuberculosis soon after. Their youngest brother Thomas arrived in 1859, but it soon became clear that Edward planned to give up the book gig in favor of something else. On May 15, 1860, Edward published a special announcement in the Bulletin newspaper, quote, I have this day sold to my brother Thomas S. Moigridge my entire stock of books, gravings, etc. I shall on 5th June leave for New York, London, Berlin, Paris, Rome, and Vienna, etc. Although he would soon alter his plans because he missed his boat, he instead took a cross-country stagecoach on July 2nd to catch a ship in New York. But his plans were soon even more severely altered. Moybridge suffered a grievous head injury in a violent stagecoach crash on the Texas border, which killed the driver and one passenger and horribly injured everybody else on board. Moybridge was ejected from the vehicle and hit his head on a rock. When he regained consciousness in an Arkansas hospital, he was suffering from a bad headache, double vision, deafness, loss of taste and smell, and confusion. It was later claimed that his hair turned from brown to gray in three days. These issues, the the other the med- the actual medical ones, not the the gray hair thing, persisted for nearly a year. Moybridge was treated at Fort Smith in Arkansas for three weeks before he went to a doctor in New York, eventually landing outside the city in the countryside to escape an even back then very loud metropolis. He returned to New York for six weeks to sue the stagecoach company, which earned him $2,500 in reparations, which is about $84,000 today. So, pretty decent chunk of change. When he felt well enough to travel to England, he received further medical care from Sir William Gull and was prescribed a treatment of no meat alcohol, or coffee for over a year. While he was undergoing the worst diet in the world, Mybridge stayed with his mother and aunt. Mybridge would later state that this time in his life was when he decided to become a photographer at the suggestion of his physician. An odd choice, as while outdoors photography might have helped in getting some fresh air, dragging around heavy camera equipment and working with chemicals in a dark room likely didn't comply with the prescriptions for rest that Gull had also provided him. Mybridge possibly learned the wet plate colloidian process while in England and was possibly influenced by some of the well-known 
English photographers of around that time, like Lewis Carroll and Roger Fenton. However, it remains pretty unclear how much he had already learned before the accident, as he was selling photographs before that, and how much he may have learned upon his return to the United States. When Mybridge returned to the U.S. six years after his accident, he was a different man, literally and figuratively. It has been speculated, notably by Arthur P. Shimamura from UC Berkeley, that Mybridge likely suffered substantial injuries to the orbitofrontal cortex that probably also extended into the anterior temporal lobes, which would have led to some of the emotional, odd behaviors and risk-taking reported by friends in later years, as well as the injury freeing his creativity from conventional social norms. So, you don't need drugs to be creative, kids. All you need is a a violent stagecoach accident to knock those creative juices loose. Don't get into a stagecoach accident. Mybridge returned to San Francisco on February 13th, 1867, a very different person than the one that had left. He had changed from a smart and pleasant businessman into an eccentric artist by the name of Helios. Beyond that, those who knew him before stated that he was much more careless about his appearance, made obvious by the crazy beard he rocked for the majority of the rest of his life, could like a person one minute and despise them the next, and soon after that, act like nothing happened. He would regularly misstate previous previously arranged business deals. His care about whether he judged something to be beautiful had become much stronger than his care for money. He would even refuse payment if a customer was even slightly critical of his work. A close friend since 1855 claimed that he could hardly recognize Mybridge after his return. But that hardly bothered Mybridge. Photography of this era was a cumbersome, heavy process, and you needed a lot of crap. The wet colloidal process that Moybridge used required that he bring not just the camera and the 20 by 24 inch glass plates called mammoths on which photographs were taken, but also the chemicals and equipment needed to develop that image on site. Wet plate photography had to be developed before the chemicals that captured the image on the glass dried, otherwise the photo would be destroyed. Moybridge converted a lightweight two-wheel, one-horse carriage into a portable darkroom to carry out his work and dubbed his business Helios's Flying Studio. He became very successful in photography, focusing principally on landscape and architectural subjects. An 1868 advertisement stated a wider scope of subjects, though, quote, Helios is prepared to accept commissions to photograph private residences, ranches, mills, views, animals, ships, etc. anywhere in the city or any portion of the Pacific coast. Architects, surveyors, and engineers' drawings copied and mathematically correct. Photographic copies of paintings and works of art. As Helios, Mybridge produced over 400 different stereograph cards, initially sold through a San Francisco gallery before they were picked up by distributors. If you don't know what a stereograph card is, it's essentially an old-school Viewmaster. If you're too young to remember what a Viewmaster is, it's a very primitive form of a VR headset. But it doesn't move and it's just a picture of a dude on a mountain. From June to November 1867, Mybridge visited Yosemite, where he did a lot of dangerous shit in order to take his photographs. A stereograph he published in 1872 shows him sitting casually on a protruding rock over the Yosemite Valley, a 2,000-foot drop precariously below him. 
Mybridge returned from his expedition with numerous stereoscopic views and larger plates. He selected 20 pictures to be retouched and manipulated. The sky, for example, would have to be taken separately as cameras of the day could not capture a subject and the clouds in a singular image. He did this for a subscription series that he announced in February 1868. 20 original photographs were used to illustrate John S. Hiddle's guidebook, Yosemite, Its Wonders and Beauties, from 1868. Also in 1868, Mybridge was commissioned by the U.S. government to travel to the newly acquired U.S. territory of Alaska to photograph the Native Americans, Russian inhabitants, and landscapes. In 1871, the Lighthouse Board hired Mybridge to photograph lighthouses of the American West Coast. In 1873, Mybridge was commissioned by the U.S. Army to photograph the Modoc War being conducted by the Native American tribes of Northern California and Oregon. So yeah, by the mid-1870s, Mybridge was a huge name in photography. People the world over had seen his photographs in exhibitions and world's fairs, but a gig he took on in 1877 would turn him into one of the fathers of the motion picture. Stanford was a Republican politician, railway baron, and former governor of California when he hired Edward Mybridge to photograph his prized horse, Occident. Stanford also had a keen mind for science and had a scientific quandary, if you will. Oh, and if the legend is true, he had a $25,000 wager on this as well. It was, when a horse gallops, at any point, do all four of its feet leave the ground? And if they did, what did that look like? The human eye could not discern this because horses run real fast, but Stanford believed that photography might provide the answer and show that a lot of paintings over the years have depicted it incorrectly. He believed Mybridge might be the man to help him answer this question. Initially, Mybridge believed it was impossible to get a good picture of a horse in full motion. He knew of only a few examples of instantaneous photography, which were made in London and Paris at this time, and these things were all of subjects that were more or less stationary, like buildings. Current photography just wasn't up to capturing the speed of an animal capable of going upwards of 55 miles per hour. Even with all of this in mind, though, Mybridge still agreed to give it a try. The first experiments were executed over several days in 1873 to create the needed bright backdrop in order to allow as much light as possible to go into the camera. White sheets were collected and Occident was trained to walk past them without freaking out. More sheets were gathered to lay over the ground so the legs could be clearly visible and Occident was further trained to walk over those as well. On the photography side, Mybridge developed a spring-activated shutter system and managed to have the shutter be open one-eighth of an inch and eventually managed a shutter speed of one five-hundredth of a second. In today's cell phone cameras, if you were to shoot a subject in broad daylight, it would capture that image in about one one-hundredth to one one-hundred-and-twentieth of a second depending on the light. At least so says the images on my iPhone. So this camera was taking pictures real fast, which means it needed a lot of light, and that's why the white background. So they were doing everything relatively correct. 
I mean, he was a professional. I would hope he would know how to do that. But despite this ultra fast camera that could take a picture really quickly, the best result from this first experiment was a very blurry and underexposed image of the horse. Mybridge was far from satisfied with this result, but to his surprise, Stanford was super stoked after viewing the images for the first time. Yes, they hadn't pulled up their feet in a high-quality manner, and boy, howdy did he brag about his feet in the press anyway, but the images definitively provided Stanford the answers to his questions. All of a horse's feet did leave the ground at some point, meaning the long-held belief that they didn't was incorrect, and also when it does happen, they're not all like stretched out in front of them, which was a very common conception at the time. Internally, Mybridge wasn't satisfied with the images. He knew he could do better. Before leaving Stanford, Mybridge promised to concentrate his thoughts on coming up with a faster photographic process for the project. Although Stanford later claimed he did not contemplate publishing the results, the local press was informed and it was hailed as a triumph in photography by the Daily Alta California. The image itself has remained unpublished and has not yet been found if it still exists at all. Over the next several years, Moybridge was, well, busy. He had other projects which saw him traveling to distant lands all over the world. Oh, and he did a murder. On May 20th, 1871, the 41-year-old Mybridge had married 21-year-old divorcee Flora Shawcross Stone. She had been a photo retoucher in his studio when they met, and Mybridge paid for her divorce so that they could get married. The differences in their tastes and temperaments soon became very apparent and were largely blamed on their age gap. Though I'm sure Mybridge's eccentricities, which were on full display by this time, didn't help matters either. Mybridge didn't care for many of his new wife's hobbies or recreational activities, so she went to the theater and other stuff without him, and he seemed to be totally cool with that. He was a homebody by nature when he wasn't out traveling the world, which didn't stop when he got married. On April 14, 1874, Flora gave birth to a son that they named Florado Helios Mybridge. At some point, pretty early on in the marriage from the sounds of it, Flora started having an affair with one of the couple's friends, Major Harry Larkins. Larkins would find a job at a mine near Calistoga, California, which is about 80 miles north of San Francisco, which is where he was when Mybridge found out about the affair. In mid-October 1874, Mybridge learned just how serious a relationship between his wife and Larkins really was. Flora's maternity nurse tattled on her, revealing details of the affair and several of the duo's love letters that she had in her possession. Mybridge also found a picture of Florado with little Harry written on the back in Flora's handwriting, suggesting that she believed the child to be Larkins's, not Mybridge's. On October 17, 1874, Mybridge went to Calistoga to track down Larkins. This involved a ferry ride from Vallejo and a train ride through Napa Valley, giving him plenty of time to consider his next moves. Like, I grew up in this area. Getting from San Francisco to Calistoga with modern transportation is cumbersome. So this had to just be just, ugh, so long and so, oh my god. But basically, the point is, a lot of time to, like, just stew with it and potentially, you know, Calm down a little bit. But if you think toxic masculinity is bad today, just imagine how bad it was in the 1870s. Mybridge eventually found Larkins after a final carriage ride and reportedly said to him, quote, I have a message for you from my wife and shot him a point blank. 
Larkins would die that night, and Mybridge was arrested without incident and put in the Napa jail, where he would remain until his trial was over. Mybridge was tried for murder in February 1875. His attorney was a friend of his buddy Stanford, whom would have his client plead insanity due to the severe head injury from the stagecoach incident years earlier. At least four longtime friends and acquaintances backed this claim up. Even his art and the fact that he sat over a 2,000-foot drop for a photo was used as evidence to this man's insanity. Mybridge would be acquitted on the ground of justifiable homicide, with the jury believing that had the shoe been on their foot, they would have done the same thing. He was the last man in California to get off on this verdict. Gotta love being a white dude with powerful friends in the 19th century. Or really, any time in history, let's be honest. Flora would attempt to file for divorce from her husband twice, first in December of 1874, which was turned down, and again in April 1875, which was approved. It was a short-lived victory for her. Flora died suddenly in July 1875, while Mybridge was off in Costa Rica. Florado ended up in an orphanage, though Mybridge would pay for his care. Otherwise, he had little to do with his son, likely due to the question of the boy's lineage in an era before the paternity test. It was reported, for what it's worth, that the grown-up Florado greatly resembled Mybridge. With that whole murder thing behind him, in 1877, Mybridge and Stanford teamed up once more to try and capture Occident galloping, this time pulling a cart. Once again, Mybridge captured the horse with all four feet off the ground. One of the prints of this was sent to the local press, but because they found that the film negative was retouched, though a not uncommon process even back then, the press ended up dismissing it as a result. But this hardly mattered to some people as the photograph won Mybridge an award at the the 12th San Francisco Industrial Exhibition. Stanford financed Mybridge's next experiment as well, to use multiple cameras to photograph a thoroughbred at a gallop at Stanford's farm in Palo Alto, which today is, you guessed it, where Stanford University is. They let Occident, though, sit this one out. On June 15, 1878, in the presence of the press, so nobody could say that the photos had been faked, Mybridge photographed the businessman's mare, Sally Gardner, whilst galloping. Mybridge arranged 12 cameras 27 inches apart along the track parallel to the horse's course. The shutters were controlled by trip wires that would be triggered by the horse's legs when it went by and the horse would be going at about 36 miles per hour. When the horse was released, the photographs were taken in succession one twenty-fifth of a second apart with the shutter speeds calculated to be a little less than one two thousandth of a second. To give you an idea of how freaking fast this was, modern day sports photography is about half that speed. Mybridge developed the negatives on site, and when the press noticed the broken straps on Sally's saddle in the negatives, as they had witnessed earlier in the day on the horse, they became convinced of the print's authenticity. The images showed the mare lifted all four legs off the ground at certain points during the gallop, tucked under its body, not extended as had been previously hypothesized. Mybridge's feet became international news practically overnight. The first exhibited magic lantern slides of the photographs appeared at the San Francisco Art Association on July 8, 1878. Six different series were soon published as cabinet cards entitled The Horse in Motion. Scientific American was among the publications at the time that carried reports and engravings of Mybridge's images. 
1879, Mybridge continued his experiments with additional studies with 24 cameras and published a very limited edition portfolio of the results. He further had images from his motion studies copied in the form of silhouette onto a disc to be viewed in the machine he had invented, which he called the Zoo Praxiscope. This device would later be regarded as an early movie projector as it could show 200 glass slides rapid fire, a clear intermediary between a magic lantern and a film projector. Mybridge wowed audiences at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893 with this invention. The exposition's organizers even built a special zoo praxographical hall say that five times fast, to house Mybridge's moving images. They charged viewers for entry, effectively creating the earliest form of the movie theater. Based on descriptions from reporters that saw Mybridge's shows, the moving images greatly resemble a gif or gif, depending on how you say it, as far as how the images moved. Within two years, his zoopraxiscope would be old news, as the Lumiere brothers in France were exhibiting their own full-on moving pictures. In his later years, Mybridge continued his motion studies, though they were briefly interrupted after falling out with Stanford, whom had another friend use Mybridge's photographs, without giving Mybridge credit, to write a book analyzing the photographs. Throughout the book, Mybridge's photos were recreated extensively, and no credit was given to him. It turns out, Stanford only saw Mybridge as an employee, not a fellow collaborator. Mybridge sued to get his credit added, but the case was dismissed. As a result... Mybridge lost funding from the Royal Society in England to continue his motion studies. In the 1880s, the University of Pennsylvania sponsored Mybridge's research using his banks of cameras to photograph people in a studio and animals from the Philadelphia Zoo to further study their movements. The human models would either be completely nude or in very light or opaque clothing and were photographed against a measured grid background in a variety of activities, including walking up or down stairs, hammering on an anvil, carrying buckets of water, boxing, a naked lady smoking a cigarette in a chair. Pretty sure that one was just for Mybridge. The reason the photographs were taken against a grid was so that nobody could say that the images had been faked. He also photographed athletic activities such as baseball, boxing, cricket, and a ballet dancer dancing. Mybridge often also posed himself nude for some of the photographic sessions, such as one showing him swinging a miner's pick. I saw a lot of dead dudes' penises this week trying to write this episode, you guys. Like, so, so, th- there was no such thing as manscaping back then. My, They're burned on the back of my eyes. But I did that for you. <laughs> Between 1883 and 1886, Mybridge would produce over 100,000 images working at the University of Pennsylvania. Later, Mybridge would work alongside Etienne Jules Marais, a French photographer in science that was doing similar motion studies in his homeland, though his focus was more scientific-based, not entertainment, as in his later life, Mybridge did a lot of this stuff more as an entertainment medium, not so much a scientific one. Mybridge would also meet with Thomas Edison whom we're covering at the end of the month about collaborating on a project, but this never happened. Today, setups similar to Mybridge's cameras of carefully timed multiple cameras are used in modern special effects photography, but they have the opposite goal of capturing changing camera angles with little or no movement of the subject. This is often dubbed bullet time photography. Have you seen the Matrix movie? This is how the scene where Keanu Reeves like dodged all the bullets was achieved. It's called, and I think, and if I'm not mistaken, that's actually where bullet time, the term came from, is from them using it in the Matrix. But Edward Mybridge was the one who technically invented that. 
Edward Mybridge retired to his native England in 1894, but continued to lecture extensively throughout Great Britain. A year later, like I said, the Lumiere brothers, whom we'll cover later this month, gave their first exhibition of their films, including the train arriving at the station, making the zoo praxiscope a relic. Moybridge died on May 8th, 1904, in Kingston-upon-Thames of prostate cancer at the home of his cousin Catherine Smith. His body was cremated, and his ashes were interred in a grave at Woking in Surrey. On the grave's headstone, his name, ironically, is misspelled as Edward Maybridge. Maybridge's studies in motion would inspire scores of inventors and photographers for decades, technically centuries. Also, his experiments, which essentially allowed photos to move, would lead to other inventors to try and find a way to achieve this process using just one camera. There would be several others whom would experiment with the moving image, but one of the largest obstacles preventing this was the film stock of the time. Glass plates just wouldn't cut it if you needed to take a lot of pictures real, real fast. Good thing there was a man by the name of George Eastman knocking about around this time. But that, dear listeners, is a story for next week. And that is going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a humongous help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're discussing the life and legacy of one of the men that gave us the film necessary, until it wasn't, to provide us with the motion picture, George Eastman. We'll also cover the history of his company, Kodak. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.